0: The story of Joseph. It's one of the most prominent in the book of Genesis. But think about it, Joseph is rarely mentioned in the rest of Scripture. So, how can we understand Joseph's significance in redemptive history? From prisoner to the palace. That's our conversation in just a bit. Hey, glad you've joined us for The Land and the Book with noted Old Testament scholar Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Gager, and Charlie, a lot of people wonder what is the next event on God's prophetic timeline? Why is it important and what does it mean for us?
1: Well, John, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this issue. It's called The Rapture: Paul's Hope and Comfort, and it's an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and that will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. And receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeandmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing
0: God's heart for the Jewish people. Our program, The Land and the Book, is divided into four segments. Charlie, an overview for somebody who's just maybe new to the program. Well, in this first segment,
1: we're gonna talk about current events, what's happening in Israel that we need to know about. And then you interview a guest who shares more about the Bible or the Middle East or another part of fascinating history that's happening. Segment three is Q&A. People get to ask their questions, right in on email, and I'll answer their question personally to them and then on air. And then finally, the final segment is the devotional. We take people to a spot in Israel, open up God's Word, and
0: share the truth of that event out in the spot where it happened. With that as an overview, let's dig into our look at current events. As Israel turns from its recent conflict in Gaza Its upcoming elections, how much of an impact will the fight against Islamic Jihad have on the election itself? And what else is happening politically that could impact the outcome of the election? Well, Israelis were
1: generally positive regarding the outcome of the conflict with Islamic Jihad. They gave good marks to the coalition led by Yair Lapid for the way they handled the situation. But that positive perception didn't apparently impact voters' thoughts on the upcoming election. A poll done immediately after the conflict saw a possible increase of one Knesset seat for Lapid's party, with a corresponding drop of one seat for Netanyahu's Likud party. Uh, The main priority for voters, it seems right now, is the rising cost of living in Israel. In fact, 44% said a party's economic platform and plan to address rising prices will have the greatest influence on their vote. Now, three other issues could potentially impact the race in ways that even aren't yet fully known. Uh, The first is the decision of Gaddy Eisencott, a popular former chief of the Israeli Defense Force, to enter politics and join the party of Benny Gantz. He was given the third slot on the party ticket, indicating the positive impact they hope his decision will have on their party. Uh, the party also rebranded itself. Uh, the Blue and White Party, along with their partners from New Hope, uh, led by Gideon Sa'ar, are now calling themselves the National Unity Party. Now, they hope to position themselves as a center-right party that will be able to unite a broader segment politically. The second issue that could impact the elections is the possible disintegration of the Yamina Party. That's the party of the former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. One of their party members announced his defection from Yamina to the new National Unity Party, and recent polls suggest the Yamina Party could slip below the minimum voter threshold required to gain any seats in the Knesset. Now, other parties are going to try to poach voters from Yamina, by telling those voters not to waste their votes on a party that won't make it into the Knesset. And the third issue that could potentially impact the race is the legal motion filed by Netanyahu to dismiss the charges of bribery, fraud, and breach of trust against him in case 4,000, the most serious of the corruption cases he now faces. He joined two other defendants in the case, and they claimed the entire investigation was tainted with undue pressure placed on key state witnesses to coerce them to testify. Right now, it's unclear how this will play out in the courts, and it won't be resolved before the election, but it does add still another wrinkle to the election debate. Yeah. Now, with new alliances, new faces, new legal maneuvers, uh, it's already starting to heat up what was already a pivotal
0: election in Israel. Well, the West and Iran continue to move toward a resumption of the nuclear agreement. The question, though, is will a reworked agreement make the Middle East a safer place, or does it just create other problems for the region? Your thoughts, Charlie?
1: Yeah, with all the twists and turns in these negotiations, we won't know for sure if there is a new agreement until all the parties actually sign it. But it looks like the West is desperate enough to have the agreement in place, and Iran has signaled its willingness to sign on as well, well that is, once they've pulled every concession possible from the West. But if it happens, will it make the Middle East a safer place? Well, the short answer is, no, it won't. It will likely keep Iran from assembling a nuclear device for at least a few years. But Iran has already amassed the technical knowledge to build a bomb, and they continue to develop more advanced centrifuges. Once the timeline on the agreement expires, and by the way, John, that's less than eight years, it's Mm -hmm. virtually certain Iran will again move forward, but this time without any sanctions in place to impact them financially or hold them back. And as sanctions are dropped, loosened, or ignored, Iran will work to convert its oil and gas reserves into cash to fund the political and religious goals that have guided the country for over four decades. This last two weeks, the attempted assassination of Salman Rushdie, uh, that was the result of a fatwa or Islamic legal decree issued by Iran's Ayatollah Khomeini back in 1981. That decree was never rescinded. And the U.S. Justice Department recently indicted a member of Iran's Revolutionary Guard for seeking to pay for someone to assassinate former U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton. Iran is also working more closely with Russia in the Middle East. Russia recently launched a spy satellite they built for Iran, and Iran's planning on adding three additional satellites in the coming years. Uh, Iran and Russia also struck a deal that sent several hundred Iranian combat drones to Russia in exchange for Russian fighter jets to upgrade Iran's air force. Now, Iran won't have a nuclear weapon for several years, and that's good. But its overall goals haven't changed. If anything, they appear to be more brazen in what they believe they can do because of their increasing ties with Russia, and because of what they perceive to be reluctance on the part of the West
0: to get involved. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, an overview of current events from the Middle East in this opening segment. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, I'm John Geiger. Well, the archaeological debate over the location of Bethsaida took another turn, with the discovery of a mosaic to Peter at the site closest to the Sea of Galilee. So does this discovery finally, once and for all, answer the question regarding Bethsaida's actual location?
1: You know, I keep thinking, John, of the old Paul Harvey statement uh, about the rest of the story. <laughs> well, they announced this discovery of this 1,500-year-old mosaic, complete with his plea to St. Peter at the site of El-Araj on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they said this clearly identifies the site as the Church of Bethsaida, referred to by Willibald in the 8th century, said to be built over the house of Andrew and Peter. And if that's true, then they say el is now officially the site of ancient Bethsaida. Now here's the rest of the story. Uh, this church is in the Byzantine layer of excavation. Between this layer and the first century Roman layer, uh, there were about 16 inches of silt suggesting the Sea of Galilee had risen and actually covered the area for several hundred years before it receded. So does the church mark the actual spot where Peter and Andrew lived in Bethsaida, or just a spot suggested hundreds of years later? Uh, Willibald could have visited the church, but there's still no actual proof the church marks the site of first century Bethsaida. Uh, It might be, but a gap of several hundred years still leaves some doubt. And now the real other question, why was this announcement just made? Well, the next excavation season begins in October. A tantalizing announcement can always help generate volunteers and finances. And the bottom line is we still don't know for certain the location of 1st Century Bethsaida. Two sites are possible. It's also possible the two might somehow be
0: connected, but... We don't know and we won't know more until work's done at both sites. All right. We'll stay tuned. Scientists from the Weisman Institute have developed a precision virus that targets specific disease-causing bacteria in a person's gut. Tell us about this latest news from Amazing Israel that might help those struggling with Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. Well, this research is in its early phases, but it seems to hold
1: great promise. Uh, the virus effectively reduces the count of a specific bacteria found in large quantities in the guts of people with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, and it appears to suppress this one disease-causing microbe without harming other microbes in the gut. Uh, using a virus to fight bacteria is known as phage therapy, and it was studied back in the early 20th century but was largely abandoned with the discovery of antibiotics. Uh, the scientists at the Weizmann Institute developed two different virus cocktails that both seem to fight the specific bacteria in question. Uh, Both have undergone phase one clinical trials with initial results indicating they're safe and effective in reducing the count of this targeted bacteria. Uh, They hope to develop them into drugs to treat Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. And their ultimate vision is to use this approach to develop personalized therapies for a variety of disorders, including possibly obesity, diabetes, neurodegenerative diseases, and perhaps even cancer. A new way to treat unwanted bacteria in the gut using a precision virus. Let's hope this approach from the scientists at the Weizmann Institute in amazing Israel makes its way into doctor's offices in the not-too-distant
0: future. Well, we're all caught up on stories from the Middle East. Charlie, you're going to catch us up on a great devotional later on. Where are you taking us today? Uh, We're heading to the backside of the desert in Exodus chapter 3. Sounds good. And before that, of course, a conversation about Joseph from Prisoner to Prince his life story is fascinating, and we'll dig into it deeply next on The Land and the Book. The story of Joseph is one of the most prominent in the book of Genesis. If you think about it, Joseph is rarely mentioned in the rest of Scripture, So how can we understand Joseph's significance in redemptive history? Some say that Joseph was a type or symbol of the Messiah. Is that true? Lots of questions for sure. What do you say we find some answers next? This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, and I'm John Geiger. Glad to be back with you for this second segment, and glad to share this encouragement with you about reaching out in loving ways to our Jewish friends. So there you are in conversation with your Jewish friend, and the subject comes to Jesus. Do you use the name Jesus, or should you go with Yeshua, the more Hebrew pronunciation? Let's ask Greg Savitt, who serves with Rock of Israel Ministries. Greg?
2: Great question, John. I used to always say Yeshua to Jewish people, but I found most of them don't know what it means. They don't know Yeshua is shortened for Yehoshua, which means God is our salvation. So it really doesn't bring a lot into conversation to say Yeshua. Doesn't connect with them doesn't. I mean, if it's an ultra-Orthodox Jew, you know, I'll say Yeshua, but normally I say Jesus because they don't know what Yeshua is. It's sad. Non-believers just don't know the name Yeshua. Seems to me that uh, using the name of
0: Jesus, and again, this is just my preconceived notion, go ahead and correct me, is an instant flashpoint
2: though. It really is. It's a flashpoint, but you know, it needs to be out there And uh, you have to put your cards on the table. you got to let them know, this is what I believe. And if they push back, you can just say, you know, he's a Jewish savior. He's my Jewish king. All the books of the New Testament are written by someone who is Jewish, with the possible exception of Luke. But since he was a doctor, there's a good chance he might be Jewish. All
0: right. Those are insights from Greg Savitt here on The Land and the Book. Go ahead and use the name of Jesus. Dr. Samuel Imadi earned his Ph.D. at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, he serves as the senior pastor at Hunsinger Lane Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and as an editor at Nine Marks. Nice to have you on the program, Dr. Imadi.
3: Yeah, thanks, John. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, so what about that question that we teased as we opened this segment? Why does Joseph figure so heavily in the book of Genesis, but then kind of fade into obscurity after that?
3: Um, I think the answer to that question ultimately is that Joseph is the capstone to the book of Genesis. Um, In the story of Joseph, we see, you know, all all the major threads of Genesis, all all the effects of the curse, famine, fraternal conflict, you know, violence. All of those things get reversed through this beloved son and servant king who brings about blessing to his family and to the nations through the forgiveness of his family.
0: Mm-hmm. But then why, why fade off into obscurity after that? If that's something to be celebrated, and it is, uh, you know, we just don't hear much about him.
3: Yeah, it is interesting. You have a couple of references to Joseph in the rest of the Old Testament. So he's, he's discussed at the beginning of Exodus, in the middle of Psalm 105. So he is not as prominent of a character for later biblical authors. However, I do think that Joseph is alluded to, not explicitly mentioned, but alluded to in some pretty meaningful ways. And uh, one place that I would point to specifically where I think the biblical authors are really reflecting on the Joseph story is in the book of Daniel. You know, if you read the book of Daniel, it's, quite a bit like the Joseph story. I remember even as a kid in Sunday school classes getting confused by Joseph and Daniel because it just felt like both of them were almost the same character. Here you have an exiled Jew in a foreign territory under an oppressive king who interprets dreams and rises to the second in command. And I think, you know, if you were to read Daniel in Aramaic, you would find that many of the same words and phrases that are used to describe Daniel are lifted right out of Genesis 39, for instance, right out of the story of Joseph. So I think what the biblical authors do is they draw these parallels between Joseph and later biblical figures like Daniel to make a theological point. And what is that point? Well, when you look back in Genesis, what is one thing that the Lord is doing with Joseph? Well, well, Joseph is how the Lord saves his people And prepares his people in Egypt for the Exodus so here's you know fast forward a thousand years um, Israel is now in exile in Babylon what does the Lord do well he puts a Joseph like character into the story of Israel into the history of Israel and what is he doing he's signaling to the people of Israel hey just as I saved you from Egypt and brought you out in the Exodus I'm gonna do the same thing I'm saving you through Daniel and I'm going to bring you out in a new exodus from this exile in Babylon.
0: He's one of our favorite Bible heroes, but we know less about Joseph than we probably should. That's why today on The Land and the Book, we're joined by Samuel Imadi, who's written From Prisoner to Prince. I think for me personally, Sam, one of the things that I could feel better about is if somehow the Bible included some sort of a comment about Joseph's relationship with his wife, Azanath, if I'm saying that right, daughter of the pharaoh, Um, You know, here he is, raised in a good Jewish home, believing in Yahweh. Uh, You know, you wonder what kind of influence he may have had on her. Where was she at spiritually? You wish you could somehow know.
3: Yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, there are some interesting things, though, after he marries Asenath in Genesis 41 with the naming of his children. I think just the names of Joseph's children indicate that Joseph is still maintaining his faith in the Lord. Mm -hmm. And he is trusting the Lord's sovereignty in his life. And so just from the names of those children, from the general reflections we have on, on Joseph's character throughout Genesis 37 to 50, I think it's certainly plausible that Joseph is, you know, managing his household wealth and having a meaningful and positive spiritual influence on his wife and children.
0: In the book, you suggest perhaps Moses spends so much time on Joseph to show us that God can pull off the impossible, even through a seemingly insignificant Jew rejected by his own brothers. I think that's a rather encouraging thought for any listener who feels their life is insignificant. Maybe, maybe that's a, a real important reason that Joseph's life takes up so many pages in Genesis. What do you think?
3: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, You know, I've said on occasion that um, the point of the Bible is God loves to put himself into seemingly impossible situations so that he can show off. And that's really what's going on in the story of Joseph. You know, when you think about the book of Genesis, you have all these amazing promises that are given to Abraham. How Israel is going to receive a land and they're going to be fruitful and multiply. And they're going to have, you know, kings are going to come from the line of Abraham and they're going to be a blessing to the nations. Well, when you go throughout Genesis, what do you find? Well, you find that the seed of Abraham is constantly in conflict with itself. You have Jacob and Esau, Isaac and Ishmael. Now you have the brothers of Joseph that are in conflict with one another. And then here at the end of Genesis, you have a famine that's ravaging the people. You have Joseph, uh, you know, the only really righteous seed of Abraham at the end of the book of Genesis, but he's off in exile somewhere. But what it ultimately shows us is that the Lord is still going to fulfill his promises because he's he's sovereignly orchestrating all the events of history to bring about redemption for his people.
0: That's really good. From Prisoner to Prince, the story of Joseph, our focus today on the land and the book. I'm John Geiger, and with me is our guest, Samuel Imadi. Share a facet or two of Joseph's life that many of us maybe overlook or ignore, uh, details that Help us properly see Joseph as a type of Christ. You've hinted at one already.
3: Yeah, yeah. So obviously the the whole scope and sequence of the Joseph story uh, reflects this pattern that we see in the Bible of glory through suffering, resurrection through death, the crown through the cross, and we've already talked about Joseph being rejected by his brothers, being a beloved son and a servant king whom the Lord uses to bring salvation to his people, Yeah, I'll just point out to uh, your listeners that, you know, we need to read Genesis 37 to 50 in the context of Genesis. What is Genesis about? Well, it's about these promises that are made to Abraham Mm -hmm. and how the Lord is going to fulfill those promises. And how does the Lord fulfill His promises, at least in some sort of initial way to the people of Israel? Well, I would argue that we read Genesis and we see that the Lord fulfills a lot of those promises through Joseph. So consider Abraham was promised that he and his seed would be a blessing to the nations. But what do we find in Joseph? Well, Genesis 39, the Lord blesses Potiphar on account of Joseph. Uh, or we fast forward to when Joseph brings his family into Egypt and we find old man Jacob blessing the house of Pharaoh. Where we find the house of Israel, as it were, embodied in Jacob, blessing the house of Pharaoh. Even this promise that Israel would be fruitful and multiply well that's a that's a command that's given to Adam it's a promise that's made to Abraham but the first time it actually happens the first time we see Israel fruitful and multiply is in Genesis 47:27. under the leadership of Joseph he settles the people of Israel in the land of Goshen and there they are fruitful and multiply and fill the land you know it's the language of Genesis 1 it's the languages Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 so what we find is that Joseph is a pattern of the Messiah because we see in his life uh, someone who the Lord uses to fulfill the covenant promises for the benefits of his people. So I think Moses himself is kind of tipping his hand and showing us, hey, what you're seeing in Joseph, in the life of Joseph, is a pattern that's going to be repeated in the Messianic King to come.
0: We see Joseph referenced in Psalm 105 uh, in Acts 7, and also Revelation 11. Pick any of those, maybe your favorite of the three, and uh, show us what those references suggest to us
3: today. Yeah, well, we can look at Acts 7. Acts 7 is Stephen's speech after he has been accused by the temple leadership in Israel of speaking against Moses and against the temple, and Stephen defends himself in Acts 7. And For many of us, it might seem a rather strange defense because what Stephen does is he just retells the history of Israel. But what Stephen is doing in retelling the history of Israel is showing these temple leaders and these religious elites in Jerusalem that they are in league with false prophets and with the opponents of the prophets. In the Old Testament. And so, what he does is he weaves together a story showing how the Lord sent Moses and he was rejected by the people. And then the Lord sent prophets and they were rejected by the people. And before he talks about Moses or the prophets, he talks about Joseph and how Joseph was rejected by his brothers. And yet, he was the instrument that the Lord used to reconcile the family. And through that reconciliation and forgiveness, save the people of Israel from the famine. Now, when you read that in the context of Acts 7, when you see what he's doing, comparing Joseph to Moses, to the prophets, and what he's doing, comparing the brothers of Joseph to the opponents of Moses, Mm and now the religious elite in Israel, what you're seeing is Stephen saying, Hey guys, there's a pattern here of rejected deliverers, and you are guilty of this pattern. Because you have rejected the ultimate deliverer, Hmm. which is Jesus Christ. That's how he ends the passage. Joseph is a type of the Messiah. He's a pattern in biblical history that points to exactly what we just saw happen with Jesus of Nazareth.
0: You're right. Joseph's story is the story of the whole Bible. Why is that?
3: You know, what we see in the story of Joseph is that major theme that we see in the Bible, uh, which is uh, the cross before the crown, glory through suffering and that it's the death, so to speak, of the beloved son and servant king that's ultimately the instrument that the Lord uses to redeem his people. And we find that pattern just over and over again throughout the Old Testament that ultimately culminates in Jesus. So it's, it's the story of the Bible in miniature. And it's interesting in Mark 12 when Jesus tells the parable of the vineyard owner, uh, which is Jesus' own summary of the Old Testament. Again, it's this idea of Of The vineyard owner sending servant after servant to go speak to the people and the tenants of the land and call them to repentance. And uh, ultimately, he sends his son and the tenants reject his son. So this is Jesus' own summary of the whole Bible. And if you go read Mark 12, when Jesus is telling that story, the tenants of the vineyard, they see the servant coming that was sent by the vineyard owner. Mm -hmm. And they say, come, let us kill him. And that's the exact same phrase used in Genesis 37, when the brothers of Joseph look out and they see Joseph coming in the coat that he was given by his father, and they say, come, let us kill him. So even Jesus, when he's summarizing the history of Israel in Mark 12, he picks up on the language of the Joseph story to say, hey, what's going on in the Joseph story? That's basically the history of Israel over and over again. Wow,
0: there are so many great details And uh, you've done a brilliant job, uh, Sam, of bringing them out in your book, From Prisoner to Prince. There's a link to that uh, book at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Hey, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it, Sam.
3: Thanks, John. Really appreciate it, brother.
0: Up next on The Land and the Book, you know it. It's Bible Questions and Answers with Charlie Dyer. Stick around. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. It's question and answer time with our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. And Charlie, here's a question many people wonder about. What is the next event on God's prophetic timeline? And why is it important? What does it mean for, for listeners to The Land and the Book?
1: Well, John, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses that issue. Uh, it's called The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort. And it's an engaging book that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. And it'll surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish
0: people. And right now, we're going to head to our stack of email questions that have come in. Maybe yours is one of them. If not, why not? We know you've got questions. I've got questions. Why not email your Bible question, your prophecy question, your Israel question to us at, at Moody. Dot edu. Come on, you know how it is when you're reading a passage of Scripture. Something tweaks your mind and you say, why, how, what, where, when? Well, this is the place to get those questions addressed. And again, our email address is the land and the book at moody.edu. All right, Charlie, we'll dig in with Linny's question. She says, I don't understand the geographical boundaries of the promised land. Deuteronomy 11, verse 24 says, Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates to the Western Sea. I get hung up on the reference to the Euphrates River. Is this some type of hyperbole or does it really extend there? Can you help?
1: Yeah, and uh, it's interesting because there's multiple passages that go different directions. So here's how I try and reconcile them all, at least in my own mind. Now, I see the original promises like the ones in Genesis 15, where God's speaking to Abraham, being a general description of the land. He said, your land I'm giving you is the land between the two great civilizations of that day, Egypt and Mesopotamia, between the uh, Euphrates and the Nile. Uh, But God isn't necessarily saying Abraham will occupy all that land. In the very next verse, in verse 19 of Exodus 15, God defines the land by naming the occupants who are the people who were then living in the land of Canaan. Now, Then I go from that and I have to say the specific land boundaries given by God to Moses are found in Numbers 34 and Ezekiel 47. Those are the two times God actually provides a surveyor's report, if you will, showing the actual boundaries of the land. And in both cases, the land east of the Jordan River between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, well, that's outside the boundaries. And then finally, and this is where I come to the answer, I think for you, Lenny, that helps. I see passages like Deuteronomy 11 potentially being problematic, but only in the sense that we're not always sure we have enough information to solve them. For example, in Numbers 34 and Ezekiel 47, the extreme northeast boundary of the land, he gives some places that are hard to pronounce, Hamath, Zadad, Ziphon, Hatzar-Anon, and those cities don't get to the Euphrates, but perhaps the land controlled by them did extend that far. In fact, in First Chronicles 18, verses 3 and 4, it says, David fought the king of Zobah as far as Hamath and went to establish his control along the Euphrates River. So that king who ruled from Hamath, one of the city-states given to Israel, evidently ruled all the way up to the Euphrates River, that is the west branch of the Euphrates. So very possibly uh, the land boundaries given by God extend all the way up to that one segment of the Euphrates River.
0: Gordon asks, am I correct to interpret scripture to be saying that stewardship isn't just for flashy jobs like evangelists and preachers, but also stewardship of our basic blessings that God gives us?
1: and that's a good description i think the uh, understanding there you have is essentially correct in its most basic sense a steward was someone placed in charge of something by his master the expectation is that a steward would take care of those things placed under his care to to make sure they're used in the most effective way uh, for the benefit of one to whom they ultimately belong now as believers we've been given a stewardship by christ it involves the spiritual gifts we've been given as well as the natural talents and abilities and the material blessings that he's bestowed on us. The specific stewardship varies from person to person. I think the key verse in it all is 1 Corinthians four two, where it says, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. We all have a stewardship and someday we'll be required to stand before the Lord and give an account of what we have done with those gifts, abilities, you know, resources and opportunities. Now, in the same context, Paul also issues a warning to each of us. Don't go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring to light the hidden things in the darkness and disclose the motives of the human heart. Now, I see that as a reminder to avoid passing judgment too hastily on someone else, especially when it comes to questioning their use of their resources or their motives for doing so. God's going to sort all that out at the proper time. We're responsible for what he's given us.
0: We're calling this conversation, The Land and the Book. We get together every week right here, and on this segment, we're entertaining your questions about the Bible, prophecy, the Middle East, and they're welcome anytime by email at thelandandthebook@moody.edu. Deuteronomy 11, verse 1 says, "...you shall therefore love the Lord your God, and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always." This listener wants to know what is the difference between charge, statutes, rules, and commandments.
1: Yeah, well, the first word is actually only used here in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 11, though it's used 77 times in the rest of the Old Testament. Now, it has the idea of a responsibility, duty, obligation requirement. In fact, I think the final three words are actually kind of a summary of what this word means. So I don't see a huge distinction between the words, but if I were pushed to the wall to give one, I'd, I'd say something like this. That first word is the summary of all the laws and commands God set out for his people. And then the second word is specific ordinances and regulations that were decreed by God. The third word focuses on regulations governing the worship of the Lord. And uh, the final word, well, it's used in relationship to the Ten Commandments and to other specific commandments given by the Lord. But I think he's really summarizing it, saying everything that God has said, you need to do.
0: Ann says, I'm teaching a Bible study on end times prophecy this summer, and I took time out To jump to the word nations, and that word appears twice in the description of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 20 and 21, do you have any thoughts about why the nations or people groups still have a distinction or identity at that point?
1: Yeah, and we're not told specifically why the nations are still listed and identified in that picture of the New Jerusalem. So this is a guess. But my best guess is that God, in that sense, letting us know that even though we're going to all be inhabitants of the New Jerusalem and that we're going to all share equally in the benefit of God's presence and blessing, yet there's still going to be some degree of individuality and even nationality in eternity. Now, I believe this is one example of how we know Israel will exist as a distinct ethnic group in eternity. They don't lose their national or ethnic identity, and apparently neither will other nationalities. However, the Bible doesn't go into great detail on the subject, so I'm not sure we can either, apart from suggesting that individuality, along with that sense of ethnic identity, appears to remain
0: even in eternity. Robin emails us to say it seems like in John eighteen, twelve through fourteen there were two high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. Is this correct? If so, why two? high priests. they're mentioned together again in acts 4 verse 6 two other questions first who is the high priest mentioned in acts 5:17 annas or caiaphas and second in acts 23 verse 2 is this high priest ananias the same as annas mentioned before your thoughts
1: yeah you know multiple questions and this is i feel like the uh, fellow selling programs at a sporting event you know can't tell your players apart without your program well the official high priest at the time of jesus's trial and death and resurrection was Caiaphas. He served as high priest from A.D. 18 to 36. Annas was his father-in-law, and Annas had served as high priest from A.D. 6 to 15. But though he was no longer officially high priest, he was still held in great regard and held a lot of sway over the office. Remember, the Romans appointed and deposed high priests as they saw fit but in the minds of the people, the high priest was high priest until the time of death. So Annas still possessed the authority of the office, even if he wasn't allowed to officially serve in that capacity. And that's why I think they both appear in the connection with the trial of Jesus. Now in Acts five, the second question you asked, the high priest being referred to could be either Caiaphas or Annas. And Luke doesn't give us the name, so we can't say for certain if it was the official high priest, that would be Caiaphas, or the older high priest, that would have been Annas. Now, I can give a better answer for that Acts 23. Uh, The high priest mentioned there, Ananias, is still another individual. Uh, He ruled as high priest around A.D. 47 to 58, which is when the events in that latter part of the book of Acts took place. And it's interesting because it says Paul didn't recognize him. Well, the reason Paul didn't recognize Ananias as high priest is that Ananias had assumed that office after Paul had come to faith and left Jerusalem. So indeed, Paul didn't have an idea who he was.
0: Charlie, in 20 seconds, talk about the value of an interlinear translation and how easy they can be found online.
1: I'll start by saying uh, interlinears can be found just to Google interlinear Greek English translation and you'll find one. Uh, The value on them is it can help you see word for word how the word order looks in Greek and uh, it it gives you deeper insights into the the actual language
0: structure of the New Testament, which is important for Bible study. Well, coming up, Charlie's devotional right here on the land of the book. Don't go away. You're going to love it. There's something very intriguing about a desert. Hi, I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book. A number of years ago, my wife and I took an anniversary trip, and we were driving through a desert in the United States. The, the wildlife, the landscape, just nothing like it. And then, of course, you think of the Bible, where uh, many uh, places are desert-like. Uh, I think of the, the visit we always make to the Judean wilderness. You look out across this vast, bumpy, hilly land of, of nothingness. And it looks the same way it looked when Jesus was there. No telephone poles, no power lines, nothing, but nothingness. That's the desert, except it isn't nothing. And many significant things in the Bible took place in the desert, as we're about to discover in Charlie's devotional today, the backside of the desert. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Right now, I want to share with you a story from somebody who's been to the Holy Land and would like for you and me to hear this.
3: Hi, my name is Tom Doyle. I came on Charlie Dyer's tour of The Land in the Book along with my wife, Diane. My favorite takeaway from this time was the visit to Yad Vashem, a memorial and a name, the Jewish Holocaust Museum. To me, it exemplifies the spirit of the Jewish people. They do not forget their suffering, but they are ready to forgive their enemies and make peace. They refuse to let the past hold them back, but rather work tirelessly to build a future filled with hope and blessings for themselves, their children, their children's children, and all those who are willing to extend a hand of peace and fellowship. God bless Charlie Dyer for this trip, and God bless Israel.
0: Well, a moment ago we were talking about deserts, the wilderness, and uh, Charlie, I see you've got your Bible open. Where are we going today in your devotional? Uh, we're heading to the
1: back side of the desert. Hmm. Every so often, life provides you with one of those so-called Kodak moments, you know, those times when the scene in front of you captures a majestic or poignant or funny story. Well, one of my Kodak moments came at St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinai Peninsula at the foot of Jebel Musa, the traditional Mount Sinai. We went into the monastery enclosure for a tour, and the guide pointed out the original burning bush. Imagine that, John. It's still there. Hmm. Uh, and I guess I can confirm the Bible's account because the bush he showed us was green and lush. Uh, it hadn't been consumed. But as the guide's talking about the bush, I'm, I'm looking around and I noticed the fire extinguisher sitting just below it. I, I guess the local fire marshal wanted to be prepared just in case the bush ever started burning again. All right. Yeah. You know, well, we don't know if Jebel is actually Mount Sinai, but it's an amazing place to remember Moses's encounter with God. It definitely fits the description of where Moses was tending his father-in-law's flock on the backside of the desert. Imagine that scene. The area is absolutely desolate and lonely. As he shepherded the flock, Moses was by himself. The only sound he heard was the unceasing bleeding of the sheep and goats. He was constantly scanning the horizon, looking for wayward sheep or for any predators that might be lurking in the shadows. And then off in the distance, something caught Moses's eye. At first, it seemed like nothing more than a glimmering mirage, a, a trick of nature he'd seen before. But as he moved closer, he realized this was no mirage. It was a bush, fully engulfed in flame. But instead of collapsing into a pile of charred embers, this bush remained leafy green, not consumed by the blaze. On fire, yet not consumed. On fire, yet not destroyed. And that's when God announced his presence to Moses. We know the story well, and for that reason we often hurry through the passage on our way to Moses' encounter with Pharaoh and the ten plagues of Egypt. But today, let's linger near this burning bush to listen more closely to the conversation. As God called out to Moses and announced his plans to this 80-year-old shepherd, Moses suddenly felt very uneasy he had long ago ceased being that brash prince who murdered an Egyptian for beating an Israelite slave. The intervening 40 years of isolation and solitude had undermined his self-confidence, transforming that headstrong prince into a rough-hewn shepherd, more at home in a sheep pen than a palace, more conversant with flocks than Pharaoh. And that's when Moses started offering his excuses. His five reasons for not wanting to follow God's command, and each of his reasons can still resonate with God's people today. Moses' first excuse was grounded in his own personal sense of inadequacy. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? After 40 years of exile and loneliness, he felt his time had come and gone. He remembered enough about the court of Pharaoh to realize a sun-darkened shepherd would be despised by Egypt's leadership. And even if he could get Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, why would anyone follow him? God responded by reminding Moses, I will be with you. Moses might be inadequate in and of himself, but he wouldn't be heading to Egypt alone. God promised to travel with him and to provide everything Moses needed. Sounds good, but Moses had another objection. If his first question was, who am I? The second was, who are you? Okay, Lord, suppose I do what you want. Then what happens when they ask me, who is this God who sent you? God responded by giving Moses his covenant-keeping name and told him to share that with Israel. He is the eternally self-existent one, the one who always was and always will be, the one who could keep his promises because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Moses used this opportunity to introduce them to me. But Moses hadn't yet run out of excuses. He voiced his third objection at the beginning of chapter four. What if they do not believe me or listen? This objection seemed to rise out of a sense of insecurity on Moses' part. He needed a security blanket, something he could hold on to for support if the going got tough. God gave Moses not one, but two such supports. First, he told Moses to throw down his staff, and it became a snake. And then he instructed Moses to place his hand inside his robe. When he pulled it back out, it was leprous. And by repeating the act again, he could change his hand back to normal. Now, I find it fascinating that neither proof was ever needed to convince the Israelites and Moses only turned his rod into a snake when confronting Pharaoh. So it almost seems like the signs were given to encourage Moses, not the children of Israel. Moses still had a few bullets left in his revolver, so he fired off his next objection. I've never been eloquent. We might rephrase this objection a little differently today. What if I choke? When the pressure comes, I might freeze up and blow it, just like I did 40 years ago. God's answer was again so appropriate. I'll provide someone to help you, Moses, your own brother Aaron, someone Moses knew, someone he could trust, and, as it turned out, someone he didn't need. Did you ever notice that once he got started, Moses was more than able to hold his own against Pharaoh and the children of Israel? Aaron was the safety net God gave to get Moses out on the high wire, but the net was never needed. The real issue was ultimately one of trust, and Moses needed to learn how to trust God. Moses had genuine concerns, and God provided gracious answers. But finally, Moses got to the heart of the matter. He simply didn't want to obey. He eventually shot off the last bullet in his gun. Lord, please send someone else to do it. That was insubordination. Everything else had been just an excuse. Lord, I just don't want to do it. And this is the only time in the passage when God got angry at Moses. So what lessons can we carry with us down from Mount Sinai? I'd like to suggest two. First, we all struggle with fears and doubts in our walk of faith. And when they arise in your life, remember Moses. He also struggled, and God graciously provided the help he needed. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that means the grace he extended to Moses is also available to you. But second, remember that there is one attitude God doesn't tolerate, insubordination. It's okay to tell God you're afraid, but it's not okay to put your hands on your hips and refuse to obey. And Moses learned all that at the burning bush.
0: I wonder how many of us would would come away from a burning bush experience like that and have the impact that it, it made on Moses. Sometimes I think I'm so thick headed, I'm not sure it would. Well, we'd love to hear from you as you listen to The Land and the Book. You can connect with us with an email at thelandandthebookmoody.edu. The Land and the Book at moody.edu. Mike writes, This is by far our favorite program on Moody Radio. We have listened from the very first program and are always blessed by it. Hey, thanks for that shout out, Mike love to hear from you you can email us anytime at the land and the book at moody.edu the land and the book at moody.edu you know this program really takes a team and that team includes of course our host charlie dyer dan anderson putting it all together and i'm john geiger the land and the book is a production of moody radio a ministry of moody bible institute